You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yo, Saturnalia. Yo, Saturnalia. Can't leave you hanging. <laughs> Hi, it's Jen. And Jenny. And we just wanted to take a few minutes to tell you about our Patreon. Our Patreon is what helps keep the podcast going. We don't make nearly enough to keep the podcast running without the support of our listeners. Did you know that Patreon subscriptions make the perfect holiday gift? And each subscription helps us keep this podcast going. It helps us keep the lights on. Subscriptions start at $3 a month. I'm not saying I talked to the Perkta about this, but if you got a subscription for yourself or others... I bet she'd go easy on you. Good Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Plus, patrons get exclusive extra episodes, early episodes, and your name mentioned at the end of one of our episodes and more. So please consider signing up to our Patreon at patreon.com slash ancient history fangirl. That's patreon.com slash ancient history fangirl. Happy holidays. The Indus Valley Civilization calls us all out. dawn you wake to the sight of the river walking up the valley, trailing your destruction in its wake. It's closer than it was yesterday, and you know, all of you know, you'll die if you don't build. You do it fast, pile rubble in the ruins of the stately homes, build hastily on top, all the things your ancestors thought they could not live without, all of it goes in the heap. Your loves, the old bones, the toys of your childhood, the music, anything to raise the level of the streets above the level of your own undoing. Your ancestors believed there was a right way to do things, the size and dimension of bricks, the weights to measure out the grain. In the old days, the city rang with music, with the cock's cry, with the bellow of the bull. There were a thousand songs, and the children ran wild in these streets, knees skinned, they never knew the darkness. They grew fat off their own good works, and flowers bloomed in every garden. They would have no god but the river. They harnessed it like an ox is harnessed to a cart. They bound it with dams, siphoned it with canals, ringed their cities with it, invited it into their homes, sent it running beneath their streets. There was no place in the city you could not hear the river. Now the old bones in the back gardens whisper as you work. Not one of us escapes the river. But you did not come to die. You came to save your life, to save your city. 
You believe you can bring it all back. Your hands sink into the muck, into the heap, the old bricks crumbling beneath you even as you build. Build it right, the bones whisper. Use just the right dimensions to save your own life. Here is the alchemy that will bring us back. But their spells dissolve in the path of the river, and the city sinks and sinks, and your feet sink with it down into the muck. Long ago, they chose your fate. Your ancestors bound the river once, bound it for a thousand years, and now it is coming to take itself back. Your dead cannot hold it, not even from the ground. Your god is vengeful after all. Even still, you did not come to die. The city sinks, your feet sink, all of it sinks in the mud as you frantically try to raise the level of the streets and the bones in the back garden sing their dead songs. Remember us, the music goes. Remember the beauty of our cities. Remember how we loved each other. Remember, remember, surely someone will remember us. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So, our podcast was originally not supposed to just be in ancient Greece and Rome. We started there because Jen was an ancient Greece fangirl and I was writing a book set in ancient Rome. Mostly mythology, but yes. (laughs) Well, you were writing a book that was sort of like a fantasy version of ancient Greece at the time. I was. Yeah, so we were kind of like in the same vein. And then we just kept falling down rabbit holes. And the more we learned about the time period, the more we had to cover. And we just kept going down this path. Hi, Heloise. Oh, Heloise. Heloise is crying and dragging her toy around right now. Heloise just wants some attention, but mommy wrote a 22-page episode. Oh my god, she's so cute. Oh my god. I can see her. She's right above you. Right there. (laughs) She's right above you. Just like, no, unacceptable. So yeah, so we've done a lot of content about ancient Rome for that reason, but we never just wanted to be in ancient Rome. And our audience would sometimes push us to get out there and cover other things, as they should. We fall down a rabbit hole. It's hard for us to claw back out when you're deep in the patriarchy of Greece and Rome. We get really obsessive. It's almost like we built a podcast around our obsessions. One of the most commonly asked for areas our audience seems really excited about us covering is South Asian history. And for good reason, because ancient history in this region is fascinating. So for this season, where we're covering ancient mysteries from all over the world, one thing I felt I absolutely had to cover was the oldest, most sophisticated, and extensive Bronze Age civilization that we, in fact, even know about today, which was in South Asia. It's the Indus Valley Civilization. So roughly 80 cities and towns, I think, have been unearthed that were part of this civilization. The biggest one, perhaps the most important in its time, was a city called Mohenjo-Daro, Mound of the dead men. Wait, 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 wait. Let me see that again. Mound of the dead men. She has actually been practicing this. She texted me to tell me she was practicing her, her voice for this. I was practicing my creepy mound of the dead men voice. Mound of the dead men. <laughs> mound of the dead men. Mound. <laughs> Need to get that baritone in there. Mound of the dead men. Could you get Cucullin to say it for us? <laughs> no! Hey, Cucullin, can you say Mount of the Dead Men? Just say it. Mount of the Dead Men. <laughs> <laughs> that was great, Cucullin. That was what I was going for. You need more rasp. Cucullin's got a great rasp to his voice. Oh, yeah, he really does. 
Julius Caesar, you want to try? No, I'm not channeling that bitch. <laughs> Julius Caesar, are you awake? Oh, Ms. Williamson, one is always awake when a beautiful lady calls their name so sweetly. Okay, just say Mound of the Dead Men. Mound of the Dead Men. That was also better than I did it. <laughs> well done. You woke him up in the afterlife and then he outperformed you. Yeah, I did. I shook him awake. I made him say Mound of the Dead Men and now he can go back to sleep. <laughs> I really don't think our podcast can cope with that. <laughs> like, there's a part of me that's very angry right now. Julius Caesar and Jen are in an obscure fight about something to do with Tiny Home Nation. We've moved on from that. We, like, meet up. Now we're on to Nailed It. We're in a fight about Nailed It. I can't even with you two. <laughs> I don't understand. I'm going to move on with this episode. So, the Indus Valley civilization is a huge, massive, massive topic. We could write a whole arc on the Indus Valley civilization alone. I could do multiple episodes on this. That's why I decided to focus this episode on Mohenjo-Daro alone. I mean, that and the dead bodies. I do love a good dead body. I do. Dead bodies are Jenny's USB. That is her thing. If there's a dead body, literally, she's like a little meerkat popping up. Hello? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> if anyone wants to draw Jenny as a meerkat, that would be just such a great Christmas present for me. <laughs> Corpses? Where? <laughs> Corpses? <laughs> it's true. Jen, we found throughout these episodes, tends to pick her mysteries based on, is there a volcano? And I tend to pick mine based on, are there dead bodies where there shouldn't be? I did like a whole episode about skeletons in a lake where there should not be skeletons. And that was enough to carry me through the whole thing. I am always, is there a volcano? And if there's a volcano, does it tie into any kind of history, mythology, folklore? My new episode also has a volcano. You'll see. There's going to be some deviant burials in this, you guys. It's really exciting. So Mohenjo-Daro, Mound of the Dead Men, is the focus of this episode today. Mound of the dead men. Yes, that is the focus of this episode today. <laughs> but to understand that city, to understand Mohenjo-Daro, you have to understand the waters in which it swam or perhaps was inundated, so to speak. So let's zoom out and get a general sense of the Indus Valley civilization as a whole. The Indus Valley Civilization was a vast Bronze Age civilization located along the Indus River in South Asia, spanning parts of Pakistan, India, and Afghanistan. At its peak, it stretched roughly 900 miles up the Indus River and its tributaries, with cultural influence spreading out to an area 10 times as large. It was a vast ancient civilization with hundreds of towns, cities, and settlements, and it's the oldest Bronze Age civilization we know about. It's older than the Bronze Age societies of Egypt, Mesopotamia, China, and Minoan Crete. And it was also the largest, with one to five million inhabitants at its peak. The Indus Valley civilization was vast. There's archaeological evidence of human habitation in this area going back to 6,500 BC. And one site, Burhana, in the Indian state of Haryana, goes all the way back to roughly 7,500 BC. However, the heyday of this civilization dates from around 3300 BC to 1300 BC, although both those dates are a little bit fuzzy. In its time, everyone, the Egyptians, the Minoans, the Sumerians, the ancient Chinese, and others, knew the Indus Valley civilization. They traded with everyone, and they must have been master seafarers. The Sumerians called them Maluha. They were great artists and artisans known in particular for their stunning jewelry, some of which has been found in royal tombs at Ur, 
the oldest city in Sumeria. The jewelry! Oh, the jewelry, Jen. They were the only culture in the ancient world that produced highly prized carnelian beads, and they had a monopoly on the lapis lazuli mines of Afghanistan. Those two things, like, if you love ancient jewelry as much as I do, you'll know, like, those beads and the lapis lazuli were so important in ancient jewelry, and, like, oh, I'd love to just have a couple of those beads on a, on a necklace. Yeah, and that's where they got it from. Like, the people of Maluha, or the Indus Valley people, had a monopoly on these things. So the people of the Indus Valley were contemporaneous with the other great Bronze Age civilizations we know about. But they were quite different from these other civilizations. There were some things that seemed downright strange about the Indus Valley compared to what we think of as civilization in general. Much of what we assume civilization means as modern people today in the West and in other places is derived from what we know about these other Bronze Age civilizations. One of the things we might say is a hallmark of civilization is a stratified society with a ruling class, an aristocracy, specialized craftspeople, and of course, an underclass of some kind, including slavery. I was writing this out and I was like, wow, the things that we consider civilized are not very civilized. Nope. The cities of the Indus Valley do not show evidence of a major gap in wealth or status between people. There are no signs of a ruling class, of slavery or a marked difference in social class at all. While some houses were a bit larger than others, there wasn't that much difference. And almost all had amenities like indoor toilets and bathing rooms hooked up to the citywide sewer systems. There are no palaces, no temples, and no signs of religion. Yeah, the Indus Valley civilization is just radically different from other cultures that we've covered so far, and that's why it's so fascinating. You know how when we were talking about the land of Punt, we very briefly mentioned a hydro hydraulic society where they control the water and that was their power? This might be the case with the Indus Valley. A little bit unclear what their social structure was, but we're going to talk about that. So another thing we tend to associate with civilization is conquest. The great cities of ancient Greece and Rome, Egypt, Assyria, and others all expanded their territory by conquering their neighbors. That's how, we're told, a civilization goes from small family bands to larger cities, then eventually to city-states and empires. You can't have civilization without violence and conquest, right? 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 <laughs> Taking a dark turn. Clearly the Indus Valley would beg to differ. <laughs> the Indus Valley begs to differ. There is very little trace of war in this society. Few objects have been found in excavations of Indus Valley cities that could have been weapons, and even those could also have been nonviolent tools. Like, there are a few things that maybe possibly could have been weapons, but also could have had a non-weapon use. The cities sometimes had walls and other earthworks, but their purpose seemed to be protecting against the seasonal floods of the Indus River rather than defending against invaders. In fact, there's very little sign of violence or social conflict in Indus Valley cities at all. In all their artwork, their sculpture, and archaeological evidence in the ground, there's no evidence of armies, war, prisons, slavery, forced movement of populations. It's almost eerily peaceful. Yeah, it sounds like there was some Kool-Aid involved. You know, <laughs> that's a thought. Again, Scarabray sex cult sounding very similar. Was it a sex cult? I call it as I see it. Now that I've done the research, I know when I'm looking at a sex cult. <laughs> One thing to understand about the people of the Indus Valley is that they live next to a very large river that flooded periodically. This makes them similar to the Egyptians and the Cahokians, too. Both the Egyptians and the Indus Valley civilization experienced annual flooding that was integral to their agriculture, and both cultures depended on that river. 
Both are among the longest rivers in the world. The Nile is roughly 4,000 miles long, and the Indus is about 3,000 miles long. But compared to the Indus, the Nile is relatively tame. The Nile flows at a rate of roughly 2.5 miles per hour. The waters of the Indus flow at twice that, just baseline. It's a faster river, and while the Nile is relatively sedate, the Indus is prone to unexpected torrents. So I found this quote from an open access journal, the Journal of the Royal Asiatic Society of Great Britain and Ireland. I don't know. It's from 1843. It's called Memoranda on the Rivers Nile and Indus by Captain T. Postans. So, quote, The Nile, in its greatest size and volume, falls very far short of the magnitude of the Indus, its rate of progress being, moreover, not more than two miles and a half per hour or three at its most rapid season, whilst the Indus rushes on at a general rate of five miles, and the height of its inundations does not average less than between seven and eight. The course of one river is uniform and quiet, that of the other liable to sudden overwhelming torrents. I have seen the Indus throw an iron steamer of 60 horsepower on its banks and render it as totally unnavigable as a common boat for a distance of several miles and all within the space of a few minutes, when the flood would again assume its usual current. The season of inundation of the Nile begins when the Indus is usually at its greatest elevation, the comparative rise of each river being difficult to determine, for the Indus lying in shallow banks overspreads the surrounding country. So, and, you know, today it may or may not be that wild. I'm not 100% sure. I know that it's got a lot of dams on it, so it's not necessarily the same as it's been historically. And also climate change, right? You know. Yeah, exactly. So I'm not really speaking to how what it's like to live on the Indus River today. This is more like historically what it's been like. So the people of the Indus Valley depended on a faster, more powerful, more unpredictable, and just wilder river than those of the Nile. However, they became masters of it harnessing the river through complex systems of dams, channels, aqueducts, and reservoirs. Some Indus Valley cities had vast reservoir tanks. Vast. Always vast. 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 But massive. Massive loads. Vast reservoir tanks. I find this exciting. I don't know why. I hope you do too. I mean. I do, but I just have found a way to turn everything into like a smutty romance novel. I also take it in the spirit of a smutty romance novel because it's fucking astounding. It, it, it honestly, the architecture and the engineering of the ancient world astounds me because I don't understand modern engineering. And it's kind of like then you look at these ancient these things the ancients built, and I'm just like, they do that. Like, what was the trial and error process? I don't know. It's just magic. Anyway, some Indus Valley cities had vast reservoir tanks surrounding the walled city with a complex system of channels and dams that were designed to capture excess flood water and carry it to those reservoirs. When the reservoirs were full, the cities would seem like islands, floating on a mesmerizing mirrored lens of water, and collecting enough water during the flood seasons to irrigate crops all throughout the year. The Indus Valley civilization did not appear to have kings or emperors or priests or even a religion, but they must have had some kind of centralized organization, because their cities were all remarkably uniform. The mud bricks they used to build their structures were all of a uniform size. The weights they used for measurement were also uniform. And so was the way they harnessed water, both on a large and small scale. In addition to taming the vast and wild Indus River for irrigation, they collected rainwater in deep wells and reservoirs throughout their cities, had citywide sewer systems, 
hooked up to working indoor toilets and baths in each house, and complex networks of channels and gutters that took sewer water outside the city. Wherever you were in an Indus Valley city, any Indus Valley city, you were probably within hearing distance of running water. And probably no vampires. Really good protection against vampires. That's another factor. Ancient vampires. And all these cities would have had to be planned in advance, betraying a systemic approach to city planning. These were not just people settling haphazardly wherever there was a free spot on the riverbank. As someone who might live in a city that grew up a little more organically, I feel a bit cold out. <laughs> They're calling us all out. They're like, look at all these wars. Look at all this systemic oppression. Look at all of this slavery. Slavery and income gap. It's just wealth inequality. Yeah. Stratified society. Like mm. the Indus Valley civilization calls us all out. They were a vast, sophisticated and very ancient culture of peace loving traders and artists who are masters of the river, loved flowing water, took a lot of baths. We'll get into the baths and did not seem that interested in dominating each other or their neighbors. Who'd have thought you could have a civilization like that? But also ancient people who took a lot of baths. Love that water. I am here for them. They were more interested in creating amazing jewelry and art, keeping themselves clean, making babies. Sex gold. Hydroponically engineering their cities to a ridiculous level and getting rich. Filthy rich. It sounds like a pretty great life to me. I mean, look, if I had to pick an ancient civilization to live in, this is probably the most livable. Yeah. So that's the Indus Valley civilization. In many ways, Mohenjo-Daro is similar to other cities in the Indus Valley, pretty much the same. And in others, it's actually quite unique. So let's talk about it. Let's do it. Let's break it down. Mohenjo-Daro is located in what's today Sindh, Pakistan. The name means Mound of the Dead Men in Sindhi. This wasn't what it was originally called, but unlike most ancient cities, we actually have a small clue as to what the ancients may have called it. There's some speculation it may have been something like Kukatarma, based on analysis of seals found in the city. The name means City of the Cockerel, or as Jenny has put in brackets for me, City of Cocks. Thanks, Cucullin. <laughs> <laughs> He's just hanging around today, just like, hey, it's been a while. I'm going to say things in a deep, raspy voice for you. We, we might just call upon him to do that periodically. because <laughs> Why not, if you've got a direct line to him? So, moving on. Mahanjodara was built around 2500 BC. Scientists think that around 40,000 to 80,000 people could have lived there at its peak. The city was rigidly planned. It's the oldest planned city in the world. It's built of the signature Indus Valley red mud bricks, all standard sizes, built so well that even today you can wander down streets and alleyways in the city between towering walls. It's perhaps the oldest Bronze Age city in the world, where that's still possible. Most Indus Valley cities have a similar layout, and that's what we see in Mohenjo-Daro as well. The city has two distinct neighborhoods, the Citadel and the Lower Town. The citadel was built on a raised hill to the west, significantly higher than the lower town and separate from it. So the lower town, I'm going to talk about that first. It's considerably larger than the citadel. This is where um, people were believed to have lived, just like the residential area. It's located lower down and to the east. Archaeologists believe this town was built quickly, laid out on an orderly grid, mostly of small residential homes with some workshops. 
Residential houses were built with several rooms around an open courtyard. There were separate rooms for different purposes, cooking, sleeping, bathing, bathing, even more bathing. The entrances tended to be found on side alleyways, not on the main streets. Each block contained a small network of houses, either one or two stories, with several rooms and courtyards, and while few if any roofs are preserved at Mohenjo-Daro, archaeologists believe that the roofs probably would have been part of the living space, as in, people would have accessed them, maybe via ladders that went through holes in the roof, and spent some time up there. Like other Indus Valley cities, there was not a lot of wealth inequality present in the lower town. While some houses were bigger than others, they were mostly similar sizes. There didn't seem to be a wealthy and non-wealthy area of town. What you did see was a level of comfort present even in the smaller houses. Almost all the houses in the lower town had a bathroom with indoor toilets. We cannot stop stressing the indoor toilets. I spent a lot of time on the toilets, you guys. Indoor toilets, like, are unheard of. The only other place we've seen an indoor toilet is freaking Scarabray, okay? It's a flushing toilet, yeah. It's a flushing toilet, which is amazing. That had its own complex network of, se- of sewers. Like, I mean, I would say this is more complex just because it's so much bigger. No, I'm talking about this one. I'm talking about this toilet. But I'm saying the only other place we have seen an indoor toilet is Scarabray, which is much, much smaller. In fact, the Indus Valley civilization may have been the people who invented the toilet. Uh, is that right? That's what I've seen. That's that's the word on the street, Jen, is that the Indus Valley civilization may, may have invented the toilet. Thank the Indus Valley civilization that you have a toilet in your house that flushes. I'm just saying, like, Scarborough is definitely older. Well, the Indus Valley civilization goes, like, back to 7500 BC, according to some accounts, so... Oh, fine. No, the Scarabray just goes back to 3180 BC. So Mohenjo-Daro, it goes back to 2500 BC. The Indus Valley Civilization's heyday is maybe 3500 BC. But the Indus Valley Civilization, depending on how you define that, because it's a little fuzzy. 3500 is still older. It's still older. I'm like, I just, I'm just being like, let's just make sure. Yeah, we're good. These people may have invented the indoor toilet. I mean, Scarabray probably didn't have much contact with the Indus Valley people. So they probably invented their indoor toilets independently. Yeah. And they're, we don't know how exactly the Scarabray toilets would have worked. They probably weren't as complex. I and mean, they definitely weren't as complex as the ones here in the Indus Valley. I'm, I'm happy to say that. I will say that they're kind of similar. It's just on a much bigger scale. Yeah, they were. They would have been two place, two civilizations that I do think at this point in time would have existed very much in silos from each other, which I don't normally say. So what did the bathrooms look like in Mahanjo-Daro? This is what we're all dying to hear. I have to keep going on about this because it's just like indoor toilets and an indoor shower. Like, yes, this is almost livable for me. <laughs> the only reason I say it's not is because I like modern life. I don't want to go back and die from like a cut because I don't have like amoxicillin. Probably the Indus Valley is like the closest thing to me of like really livable Bronze Age civilization. Like no war, no slavery, no conquest, indoor toilets. Yeah. So what did the bathrooms look like in Mahanjo-Daro? These were usually small rectangular or square rooms with brick paved floors that sloped toward one corner where the water would run toward a drain. The drain would connect to the brick-lined sewer system built beneath the entire town. And we'll talk a little bit more on that later. So the bathrooms were basically brick-lined rooms with a slightly sloping floor that tilted toward a drain. Water jugs had been found in the bathrooms that people probably used for washing and maybe flushing the toilets. There have been stairs found in some of the bathrooms, suggesting that maybe a second person could climb the stairs and pour water on a bathing person, kind of like a shower. 
A lot of children's toys have been found in the drains at Mohenjo-Daro, suggesting that kids took their toys into the bath. The toys found at Mohenjo-Daro are ingenious and varied, with a lot of animal figurines, especially bull and cart sets. The bull toys have movable necks so the heads could move back and forth, and they could be attached to a toy cart with a yoke, rotating wheels, and sometimes a driver figurine in the driver's seat. These were like the toy cars of the time. Other toys that have been found at Mohenjo-Daro include terracotta boats and a monkey with movable limbs that could slide up and down on a string, whistles and rattles, spinning tops, and a toy with the body of a bird, the head of a ram, and wheels for legs. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, it's like a chimera. I was going to say, what a cool chimera. Yeah. Other things that have been found in the bathrooms specifically include water jugs and stigils or sweat scrapers, kind of like the ancient Greeks and Romans used. Some bathrooms have been found in private houses with floors polished to a smooth sheen by foot traffic, others covered in a thick red layer that may have been accumulated sweat or oil used as soap or moisturizer. I don't think the sweat was used as moisturizer. I think the oil was used as moisturizer. <laughs> so, there were also toilets, both public toilets and in private homes. There were a few different designs for toilets. One was basically a raised brick box or platform with a slot or hole in the middle. Another was kind of like a high back chair made of brick with walls on three sides and a little seat in the middle with a hole in it. It's like a brick throne. Yeah, and then an, op- an opening where the poop would go or the wee. You know, you sat down or maybe you stood if you have the equipment for that and you did your business and your business went down a vertical drainage channel that connected to the citywide. Or maybe you squatted. No, you sat. Like, this is not a squat toilet. It's not a squatty potty? Okay. Not a squatty potty. Yeah. So you sat down or maybe, like like I said, if you have the equipment, you could stand and you did your business and your business went down a vertical drainage channel that connected to the citywide sewer system. It's possible that the toilets could be flushed by pouring a jug of water down there after you did the deed. And that's how it connects to Scarabray. It seems like they flush their toilets the same way. That's what I think as well. Yeah. And they had some system of drainage where it left their compound. Right. So water access was a high priority. Approximately 700 wells have been found in the lower town, with a well-to-house ratio of about three houses to every well. That's a higher ratio than water sources in any other ancient city found in the world. It's better than modern cities. Like, I've seen documentaries where modern city planning nerds, like, absolutely flip out over Mohenjo-Daro's, like, city planning and water supply. It's pretty great. I'll link to some stuff in the show notes. And, and also, some of the wells were in houses, too. So people had their own well in their house sometimes. Like I said, there were both public wells and private wells inside homes. And as the city's ground level rose, people just built on top of the wells to raise the level of the wells above street level. So this is like a, a city that was inhabited for 700 years. So, you know, the street levels would rise over the years and people would just build over their, you know, the top of the well to raise it. And now... If you're looking at pictures of the ruins of Mohenjo-Daro, you will see these what looks like circular towers that stand like, I don't know exactly how tall they are. They look really tall, like 30 feet high or something. Those are wells. There are a lot of cool things that blew my mind about this episode. This is the thing where I was like, whoa, (laughs) not the bones, not anything else that we're going to get to later. It was the wells that were like 30 foot high. Really tall wells. 
Anyway, there were also fountains at Mohenjo-daro connected to a very sophisticated water system. There were all these water sources in the town. They had to do something with that water, right? That's a lot of water that you're dealing with. So you've got to find some ways to channel it and funnel it or else you may be overrun by it. The river powered these cities. So Mohenjo-daro also had a complex sewer and drainage system laid out all throughout the city. Covered drains ran under all the streets, connecting to small settling pools that allowed sediment to collect while the water itself flowed out of the city. The sediment tanks would have to be periodically cleaned out by hand. Today, you can see the public drains running along the streets, but originally, they would have been covered. All the houses in the lower town were connected to these public drains. There were even drains on the second floor of two-story houses to take wastewater from second-floor bathrooms to the drains on the street level. So no one had to toss the contents of your chamber pot out the window. Unlike the people of medieval Europe, the people of Mahanjo-daro could go to the bathroom through this complex system without tossing their poop and wee out the window. Our idea of civilization is stratified societies and wealth inequality and conquest. And theirs is like, you can go to the bathroom without throwing your chamber pot out the window. I feel a little called out right now, and so should we all. Like, their idea of civilization is so much better than ours. <laughs> I mean, look, I'm not disagreeing. I mean, unless something in archaeology proves all, like, all of this to be like not true in the next 10 years. But as of right now, this is sounding pretty epic to me. Like, again, when people are like, oh, would you like to go back and like go see a Shakespeare player or whatever? I'm like, no, I want to go back to indoor toilets. Take me to the Indus Valley. <laughs> Damn straight. <laughs> Take me to the Indus Valley. All the jewelry, all the toilets. Oh, the jewelry. I bet they were hotties. I don't know, but I bet. They at least showered, so they probably weren't stanky. (laughs) But who knows? That's a leg up over a lot of people in the ancient world. It's the Herodotus way of looking at history. Who were the hotties? (laughs) Right? (laughs) So the sheer complexity of the water system at Mohenjo-daro suggests that the people would have had to meticulously plan that city out before they started building, before they started laying even one standard size brick as they would have had to build the drainage system and then the houses on top of it right i think so i mean that's my guess i'm not a city planner i don't know but that's my guess there's nothing haphazard about mohenjo daro everything was planned in advance this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. I'm Helena Bonham Carter. And for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes. A new series of rarely heard tales... From World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. 
Everything has an explanation. We hope. That is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. That's basically the lower town, so let's take a look at the Citadel. The Citadel was to the west of the lower town, raised several meters above it on a man-made brick and earthen mound. And this in itself is not unusual. In fact, almost all Indus Valley cities had this exact layout, a citadel to the west, on a raised earthen mound, and a lower residential area to the east, also on a raised mound but not quite as high. But Mahandradara Citadel has a few unusual features. Perhaps the most notable is the Great Bath. The Great Bath is a huge pool, 897 square feet in area and about 8 feet deep, with stairs at both ends. Studies show it was originally lined with bitumen to make it waterproof. We don't know what the Great Bath was for. Was it a public bath like the Romans had, open to all? Was it a religious ritual bath, reserved for priests or special ceremonies? Was it only for the upper classes or the ruling class? We can't say for sure, but no sign of priests or religion or a ruling class has been found at Mahanjodaro. That doesn't stop people from making assumptions like these, though. Well, that's the thing about it is that when you're reading about Mahanjodaro, a lot of the time you come across these assumptions like, this pool was for the ruling class, but nobody actually knows that. That's a lens we're looking at it from, being more familiar with ancient societies that had more stratified levels of society. Yeah, and we don't know that that existed here because we haven't found the evidence of it. Exactly. So the Great Bath is not the only mystery at the Citadel, however. The other structures here are just as mysterious. Several large buildings have been found that have been categorized as administrative buildings, but we don't really know what they're for. One is the Pillared Hall, a large structure about 90 feet by 90 feet. It's like square. It had 20 square brick pillars inside, standing in four rows, although only two still exist today. It seems like the floor was partially unpaved but had strips of paving running from north to south, with rows of bricks set on edge lining each paved strip. At some point later in its history, a wall was built east to west across the room, dividing the space. We don't know why or what the original use of this building was. Another building was the College Hall. The College Hall was a large complex of 78 rooms and colonnaded courtyards. Historians think it may have had two levels. Early archaeologists thought it was a quote-unquote priestly college, or the home of an elite priest class. But again, no evidence of religion at this city or indeed in this building has ever been found. Another building is the Great Granary. This is a third huge building, which originally had a wooden superstructure. Wall divisions are still visible that some historians have claimed were grain storage bays, complete with underlying air ducts to keep the grain dry. Other historians, however, have argued that there was no evidence anywhere in this building of any grain, suggesting that it wasn't a granary at all. I have my own theory about what the Citadel was for. And this is my own lens, just based on what I've read. I think that it was for flood refuge. It was raised above the lower town area. It had a very large reservoir that you could put fresh water in. 
It had buildings that you could have large numbers of people stay in for shelter, and it had a large area for food storage. Makes sense to me. Exactly. That's that's what I think. I mean, obviously, I could be wrong. I haven't seen other archaeologists make that claim. So who knows? It could be my own fan fiction. But that's what I think. Well, particularly when you have a river that rises very quickly and relatively unpredictably, right? Like it, when it rises, it happens fast. So you would want to store everything somewhere high with a lot of space for people just in case. Right, exactly. Like you can keep like a reservoir of food that would be hopefully out of out of reach of the floods. A lot of the interpretations of buildings in, in Mohanjo-daro, especially the citadel, involve flights of fancy from scholars in the early to mid 1900s. The site was first excavated in the 1920s and even from more modern scholars who are looking at the site with an unmistakable lens, one that betrays our heritage from a very different kind of ancient Bronze Age civilization. I mean, it's irresistible to put our own lens on it like I just did, right? It's irresistible. It's a fallacy. But humans are hardwired to make connections, even if those connections aren't there, right? So we do this all the time. And it's important when you're studying this to take a step back and say, am I seeing that because there's a reason it would be there? Or am I seeing that because it's my lens? So many of us have this impression of what an ancient civilization is, like what the hallmarks of civilization are. And we compare the Indus Valley to other societies that we know with a stratified society, wealth gap, priests, rulers, and an organized religion. I've seen the buildings in the citadel being interpreted as priestly residences, the great bath as a religious bath, or maybe this was all where the king lived, despite no evidence being found of priests or kings or a ruling class or even an organized religion here or at any other Indus Valley site. We don't know that the buildings in the citadel had any religious or royal function at all. There's no better example of people looking at something through a lens than what archaeologists call the Buddhist stupa. The Buddhist stupa is unmissable. There is no other building like this in any other Indus Valley city. It rises high above the other buildings in the citadel, a huge dome built of the Mahanjo-daro red bricks. Since 1919 or 1920, when archaeologist R.D. The person who first excavated the site picked up a flint scraper inside the structure and took that to be an indication of its age. Archaeologists have been calling this building a Buddhist stupa and estimating it was built sometime around 500 AD. But actually, not everyone agrees on what this building is. So a stupa is a distinctive domed building or structure. Some of them are bell-shaped, some of them are domed. The word stupa means heap. It's like a a bell or dome-shaped structure with a tall, squared, or triangular thingy emerging from the top, which is actually a chatra, which is a stylized, symbolic umbrella. Umbrellas have major significance in Buddhism. Anyway, stupas are religious buildings that usually house sacred relics and the remains of Buddhist saints. Today, stupas are found throughout India, China, and Japan, Tibet, Sri Lanka, Java, and many other areas. But it's believed they were first built in India. The earliest were built during the reign of Ashoka the Great in 268 to 232 BC. Most sources I've seen refer to this domed building in Mohanjo-daro as a stupa. Researchers initially thought this because of like that, that scraper that was found in the 20s, and because of coins they found in the building that date to the 2nd or 3rd century AD. And the fact that the dome of this building is round, kind of reminiscent of an early stupa. It's surrounded by buildings with small rooms that archaeologists have interpreted as monks' quarters. So, the prevailing opinion on this building is that it was an early Buddhist stupa. 
built during the early days of the religion, on top of the ruins of the much older Mahanjo-Daro. However, in 2007, retired archaeologist Giovanni Verardi visited the site and noticed some strange things about this stupa. For one thing, Buddhist stupas are usually built to align with the cardinal points on the compass. This building wasn't, and while a few coins were found from the later Buddhist period, there were no other artifacts found from then, no pottery or other evidence of later habitation here. And you'd expect that if this was a later Buddhist site. In fact, you don't see any other images or hallmarks you might expect in a stupa. Images of bodhisattvas, scenes from the life of the Buddha, no Torana or Chatra, nothing. Of course, some of these elements are a bit delicate and might not have survived the years, but I feel like if there was a Chatra there, you know, this sort of stylized umbrella, they would at least see the ruins of that if it fell down, and that has not been found. Furthermore, artifacts that have been found in the buildings surrounding the dome, the so-called monk's quarters, do date from the Indus Valley time. Like, there isn't anything found that date from, you know, the period of time when people were building early stupas. The stupa is built with Indus Valley bricks, and the alternate theory is that it was contemporaneous to Mahenjo-Daro. In fact, Virardi theorized that it could have originally been a step pyramid with two access ramps. The stupa, or the alleged stupa, hasn't been fully excavated, and that would need to happen before we get any definitive answers on the nature of this building. However, if it turned out that the stupa really is a Mahondodaro-era building, maybe even originally a step pyramid, that would be groundbreaking, because that would make it the first, potentially, religious building ever found at an Indus Valley city. How was the culture of Mahanjo-Daro socially organized? This is baffling to archaeologists and historians in modern times. We keep wanting to impose our lens on Mahanjo-Daro to make it something that seems more familiar to us based on the ancient societies we're more familiar with. We look for signs of kings, priests, chieftains, and religion based on our own assumptions and the thinnest of pretexts. There are no or very few signs of wealth and equality at Mahanjo-Daro. There are no palaces, there are no prisons, and there's no sign of slavery. But there must have been some kind of social organization, because Mahanjo-Daro was very organized. The city was meticulously planned out before it was built, on top of an elaborate water management system. The city was planned and built quickly, all at once. It didn't just arise organically as more people settled there. All Indus Valley cities were like this. They all had, you know, mostly the same layout, a high citadel to the west and a lower town to the east. This suggests that the society was tightly organized, not just at Mohenjo-Daro, but across hundreds of cities throughout the entire 900-mile Indus Valley territory. That speaks to a high level of organization that didn't just start and end at Mohenjo-Daro, but was, you know, influential throughout this region. Weights and measures in Mohenjo-Daro were standardized. In fact, they were of standard sizes and weights throughout the Indus Valley civilization. This suggests that trade was highly regulated and controlled as well. How is that control maintained? In societies we're more familiar with, the ancient societies of Egypt, Rome, Greece, the Assyrians, etc., stuff Jen and I have covered, usually the use of violence becomes monopolized by the state. It's the state that goes out and conquers other territories. And if there's a dispute between individuals, it's the state that determines who's guilty and punishes that person accordingly. You're not supposed to go out and get vigilante justice, although people did. The Indus Valley civilizations, as vast as this territory was, did not seem to have any violence to it at all. These people were not warlike. 
very few, if any, weapons have been found at Indus Valley sites, including Mahanjo-Daro, and no depictions of fighting or war. Mahanjo-Daro did not have walls, although it did have some guard towers that stood to the west of the town. It did have multiple brick embankments built around the city, some 25 feet high, but archaeologists think that these were for flood protection. As for religion, as we've said, there's no real sign of religion at any Indus Valley site, and that does include Mohenjo-Daro as well. However, there are some really intriguing clues that there may in fact have been a religion and that these point to the city as being the birthplace, or maybe one of the birthplaces, for one of the world's oldest and largest religions. Leaving aside the stupa, which may or may not have actually been a stupa, there are some signs other than that, and to be clear, these signs are very tenuous and not accepted by everyone, but I'm going to talk about them anyway because I find this fascinating. So Hinduism is one of the world's oldest religions. It's believed to be around 4,000 years old, and today it has around 900 million followers, mostly in India, some other places of the world. The word Hindu means river in Sindhi, and it was the river that ruled the lives of the Indus Valley people. And there are clues albeit, you know, small, weak ones, that connect imagery from the Indus Valley with Hindu themes and concepts. For instance, the Pashupati seal. The seals in Mahanjadaro and other Indus Valley civilizations are quite mysterious. Thousands of them have been found throughout Indus Valley sites, small, square, stamp-like stones carved with images such as bulls, elephants, rhinos, and a mysterious unicorn creature as mysterious as our very own Pictish beast. There was also writing along the top and bottom. The people of the Indus Valley had their own writing system, mostly found on these tiny seals that has never been deciphered. On one side of these little squares was the carvings, incised in such a way as to leave a raised imprint when pressed into soft clay. On the other side would be a tiny sort of handle, like you would use when pressing a stamp into clay. And there was a tiny hole in the corner, so the owner could perhaps wear the seal on a string around their neck. Some archaeologists have suggested that these were Indus Valley ID cards. A lot of these seals are kind of standardized, so there have been a lot of the rhino, the elephant, the bull, the unicorn, and they all kind of have this standardized design. But some of them are very unique, and one of those is the Pashupati seal. So the Pashupati seal is it's a square stone less than two inches across, and on it is carved a seated figure. I don't think there's any other seals like this. I think it's the only one. On it is carved a seated figure sitting cross-legged, surrounded by animals, rhinoceros, buffalo, tiger, elephant, a pair of deer. Some believe this figure to be a proto-Shiva figure. Shiva, one of the most important gods in the Hindu pantheon, is sometimes called the Lord of Beasts. There are several aspects of this image that kind of, you know, at least tenuously connected to Hinduism. For instance, the fact that the seated figure seems completely at peace and undisturbed by the animals, including the tiger, which is rearing up with its mouth open in a snarl, and that suggests a dominion over animals that Shiva also had. Another is the way the figure is seated in a yogic pose, with his heels together. This is also reminiscent of Shiva, who was said to be the supreme practitioner of yoga. Then there's the theory that the figure has three faces, one facing forward and one on each side, facing right and left. Shiva is also sometimes represented with three or more faces in Hindu artwork. 
However, not everyone agrees that there are three faces on this seal. Yeah, it's kind of weathered, so it's a little bit hard to make it out, but that's one theory. Yeah, and it could be that we're seeing it through a lens, but it's a theory, and it's an interesting theory. Finally, the figure has a headdress that's a bit hard to interpret. It could be horns, but some have interpreted this headdress as representing a sacred fig tree, the Bodhi tree, which is important in Hindu symbolism and religion. It's also, incidentally, the tree that Buddha found enlightenment under. So it's also important to Buddhism as well. So there's, I can see what the problem is here. It's like you, you do have now two lenses who both want that tree to be a certain thing. Oh, absolutely. And this is part of the story of Mohenjo-Daro is there are so many lenses put on it, including on this tiny seal and including on things as big as, as the stupa. Incidentally, there's another seal. This is my favorite, Jen. That depicts another strange scene, a man with a horned headdress similar to the figure on the Pashupati seal, standing under a sacred fig tree like in the Pashupati seal, with a human head placed before him on a stool. Here we see the cult of the severed head coming to us from another place in the world. I just love the cult of the severed head. I love it. I just, it's so exciting. To be very honest, to be very, to be honest with you, everyone. We are not saying they practiced there was an actual cult of the severed head. Every time Jenny sees a severed head, she says, the cult of the severed head. She connects them. It's my own lens. I'm trying to make it fetch. <laughs> this is Jenny's own cult that she has cultivated. I know I made a dad joke. That she has cultivated across all of the history and cultures that we have been looking at. We are not saying that these people belong to a worldwide Illuminati cult of the severed head style thing. <laughs> That's my own pseudo-historical theory, is that we all descend from a cult of the severed head and we should all just get used to it. That's her own Graham Hancock, Joe Rogan style theory, people. You can look at this through a lens of it's, you know, ancient Buddhism, it's Hinduism, it's the origins of all that. Also, it's a cult of the severed head. We don't know. This is all like a lens. Anyway, was Mohanjo-daro the birthplace of Hinduism or Buddhism? Or was the Indus Valley more generally the birthplace of either of these religions? There is one more clue that points toward a connection with Hinduism, and it is about the water. The people of Mohanjo-daro and the Indus Valley were masters of mighty rivers. They harnessed the vast floods of the powerful Indus River to fill their reservoirs and irrigate their fields. They lived and died by control of that river and control of water more generally. And you can see in their vast public sewage systems, vast public, vast, vast, there are massive loads in the vast public sewer systems that are huge. If you need a, a place to find the massive loads of the ancient world, look to the Indus Valley. So they lived and died by control of that river and control of water more generally. And you can see in their vast public sewage systems, their houses with indoor bathrooms and plumbing, that these people were very concerned with personal cleanliness. Yeah, I like that. I am here for the cleanliness factor. These are cities of 40 to 80,000 people. So cleanliness would have been really important just in terms of keeping disease down. Personal cleanliness is also very, very important. You can see that like every house had a bathing room. Did their concern for personal cleanliness and control of water eventually evolve into Hindu beliefs? The Hindu religion holds that all rivers are sacred. The word Hindu means river in Sindhi. While there are many different religious beliefs under the umbrella of Hinduism, generally purification rituals play a big role, including bathing in sacred rivers such as the Ganges as a way of purifying the body before important religious rituals and festivals. 
Yeah, and this is something that I I have not done, you know, a deep dive into Hindu religious beliefs. This is just one theory I've seen posited. Did these beliefs spring from an ancient culture that depended on a huge, possibly sacred river for its very life, and that built its society around water and cleanliness? Was the Great Bath at Mohenjo-Daro a sacred pool for ritual bathing? Maybe. There's a lot we don't know, and many religious beliefs don't leave a mark in the archaeology. A preoccupation or commitment to ritual cleanliness may be one of those. You wonder why? Because you don't write down your mysteries. Like, we know that. If you're religious, particularly at any point in time, like, you have your coded mysteries and you don't want to share them with anyone else. It's got to come down organically through your training. Well, yeah, I mean, monopolization of information was a big thing in the ancient world. You know, in the Hindu beliefs, I believe the great epics, I think the earliest ones that I'm aware of were written down in the maybe 400s BC, and they at least theoretically talk about a time much earlier, maybe around like the 1700s or something BC. I have to double check those dates. But you see them written down much later. During the Bronze Age, it was pretty common to not write down your religious beliefs. A lot of religions were kind of mystery cults where people would keep a monopoly on that information and you were you only learn the mysteries if you were inducted in. Yeah, and there's several reasons for that. Some of those mysteries were involved in taking some kind of psychotropic substance, which made you susceptible to whatever the belief in the mystery was. I just think about like, again, growing up Catholic, it's like, let me explain to you how transubstantiation works. The difference between whether or not you believe a priest is blessing wine and bread and turning it into something from Jesus or that's a symbol is a huge schism that split the Christian religion, right? If explaining that to you sounds a little like weird and funny as a 21st century person, think about how explaining some of these other mystery cults would have been to outsiders. You wouldn't have written that down. And we only know about this because people wrote it down, particularly when they left the religion or were creating handbooks for the religion. Hundreds or thousands of years later sometimes. And that's what I'm trying to explain here. Like, I understand why mystery cults didn't write this down, because some of it you would only believe once you've been fully indoctrinated into it. And others, it is that monopolization of, of information, right? You don't want people to know so they can't go off and like create their own whatever sect of this religion. And the other bit is maybe people won't believe you and make fun of you. Like, I get that. A lot of this is our own lens. Huge lens is being put on all of this right now. The Hindu religion, the Buddhist religion, the cult of the severed head, which I keep trying to make fetch. <laughs> Jen's Catholicism, like all of this. Which I'm not trying to make fetch. I'm just trying to explain how like a modern thing divided a major religion. Well, right. But, you know, when you when you have a basis in one religion, even if it's clearly not the same thing at all, that tends to color how you see things. It does. And it colors how you look at other religions. It's like, oh, okay, I get why this wasn't written down for power reasons. And also for like, I don't know, is anyone going to like make fun of me for my secret beliefs? And then I have to like interrogate them. And then that's a whole nother power move. That's like if I have to interrogate them and I might not believe it because I'm not on whatever drugs I'm normally on when I do this. Then (laughs) You mean I have to think about this sober? You mean Dionysus will not be with me when I'm thinking about why I'm tearing apart a deer? Why would you tear apart a deer if you're not under the influence? That's it's not half as fun. Exactly. And why do I want to think about it later? I just want to think about the frenzy of like slaying the patriarchy while I'm, you know, high. Here, here. We all feel that way, Jen. Right? To me, that's the other side. It's like, yes, the power and the monopoly of it. And then it's also like, if we tell people what we do after dark, how judged are we going to be? <laughs> right. But that's a belief that you and I 
understand and sympathize with that might have been totally alien to the people of Mohanjo-daro because they might have had a totally different experience. We don't know and also remember the very tiny, tiny amount of people who probably could read and write in the ancient world. Seems like everybody had an ID card with writing on it, so I bet people, I bet people were literate. I can't say for sure. And people don't 100% know that those were ID cards, but it's a question. Yeah, it's all fascinating. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Let's move on to a different section of this of this uh, episode, which is about... Of this mindfuck. <laughs> of, this, of this mindfuck, which is about the Mahanjo-Daro massacre. This is the reason Jenny wrote this episode. Be honest, Jenny. I love a good deviant burial. Archaeologists will be quick to tell you that there are no signs of violence at Mohenjo-Daro. There are no weapons, no signs of fire or collapse or war. The fortifications were built to defend against the river, not other people. It would be easy to conclude that the people of the Indus Valley simply didn't do war. Mound of the dead men is called that for a reason. Tell us more. Thank you, Kukulin. <laughs> we will. Anyway, Mound of the Dead Men is called that for a reason. Mahandodaro is not without its grisly mysteries. One of the greatest surrounds the 44 skeletons found in the town, how they died and what they mean. These skeletons were found outside mortuary contexts, meaning they were not buried in the usual manner. They lie in contorted positions limbs flung out and sometimes in pieces, as if they were simply allowed to lie where they died, or perhaps tossed into rooms or pits. Because many were found in the top layers of the city, the last layers, historians have traditionally assumed they were casualties when the city was finally abandoned. Parts of a skeleton, upper arm, thorax, bits of skull, were found lying diagonally across the street that became known as Dead Man's Lane. Dead man's lane. Kukulin, do you want to just read this whole paragraph? Is that okay? Ask Jen. I'm not asking her. I don't need her permission. Oh, it's fine with me. (laughs) Okay, then. Other skeletons were found in streets and courtyards in other parts of the city, sprawled haphazardly in death, covered with thin layers of rubble from collapsed buildings. (laughs) Four skeletons were found in a basement room near a well. Two (laughs) lying twisted on the floor. Two others seemed to have died crawling up the stairs to the street level. Nine skeletons, five of them children, were found in strangely contorted attitudes and crowded together. Quote unquote, at the bottom of what appeared to be a pit as if they were tossed in and left to rot. That just makes that paragraph like 19 times more metal. <laughs> it really does. Thank you, Cullen. That was real hardcore metal shit. 
As you wish, lady. This is why I'm single, because Cucullin. <laughs> That's why everyone's single, because of Cucullin. <laughs> Not all for the same reason, though. <laughs> no, but he broke so many different men and women for so many different reasons. Sweet baby bisexual Jesus. <laughs> Sweet baby bisexual Cucullin. <laughs> so, here's how Paul Bond, author of Written in Bones, How Human Remains Unlock the Secrets of the Dead. Excuse me. Written in bones, how human remains unlock the secrets of the dead. (laughs) (laughs) Good job, Cucullin. Quote! Quote. (laughs) I'm telling him he has to stop. It's not his podcast. He disagrees. (laughs) He's like, it it actually is. People prefer me to you. People prefer me and Julius Caesar to you. (laughs) That and the severed head of Crassus. I'm sorry. (laughs) I can't even remember what his voice was like, the severed head of Crassus. Man. I don't think he did a lot of talking. I think most of his acting was nonverbal. I think he was strangely, largely a prop. (laughs) He'd be vociferously angry at that. Oh, he would be so angry. So anyway, quote, In a room with a public well in one area of the city were found the skeletons of two individuals who appeared desperately to have been using their last scraps of energy to crawl up the stair leading from the room to the street. The tumbled remains of two others lay nearby. Elsewhere in the area, the strangely contorted, quote within the quote, and incomplete remains of nine individuals were found, possibly thrown into a rough pit. In a lane between two houses in another area, another six skeletons were loosely covered with earth. Archaeologists who uncovered the first of these skeletons interpreted this as a massacre. The theory goes that sometime around the 1900s to the 1700s BC, fierce chariot-riding Indo-Aryans from up north swept down and ransacked the wealthy Indus Valley. They massacred the inhabitants and destroyed the cities and caused the downfall of this peace-loving trading civilization. The bodies at Mohandro the theory goes, were the last defenders of the city, brutally slaughtered when the Indo-Aryans overcame their defenses. In fact, in 1945, archaeologist Sir Mortimer Wheeler famously declared that, quote, on circumstantial evidence, Indra stands accused of slaughtering the defenseless, peace-loving people of Mohandro This theory is not widely accepted today. Although it's also repeated as fact in some mainstream sources. One problem with it is that aside from the bodies, there are no signs of violent destruction at Mahanjodaro. There are no weapons, no armor, no broken chariots, no arrowheads, no signs of fire. The skeletons show little, if any, signs of having died violently. If these were defenders of the city, why doesn't even one of them have an arrow in the vertebrae or a knife strapped to their belt? Why are none of them wearing armor or holding weapons? And I can see not having armor, but they would have had some kind of weapon. Right. If they're defenders of the city, you know, even if they're not martial, they would have had, you know, maybe a shovel that they grabbed up that they were using as a weapon. Like, we're not seeing any of that. Yeah, they would have had knives on them. Something. For that matter, why were all of them found in the lower town? None in the citadel, which you'd think would be tactically better from a defense perspective. There's also the question of whether these skeletons actually belong to the last layer of Mahanjodaro. The time period these skeletons belong to seems to be a bit muddled. And again, we've talked to you about what it looked like in a siege in the ancient world. There would have been things that would tell us 
why this these people would have been in a siege. And we're just not seeing that beyond the absence of fire and weapons. There were just like, it just doesn't look like a siege is what happened here. So numerous skeletons have been found lying in the streets, covered loosely with piles of rubble and debris. Archaeologists in the past have interpreted these skeletons as victims of violence in a raid or siege left to die where they fell. But others dispute this. Some say that the bodies were legitimate burials. Part of the problem is the confusing context of the skeletons within the layers of time at Mohenjo-Daro. So Mohenjo-Daro, I think, was active for, I don't know, like seven or eight hundred years, maybe more, maybe a thousand years. And that's a lot of, you know, layers of habitation. Yeah, and they frequently flood. Those layers can easily be crashed into each other. You know what I mean? Right. Like disrupted for various reasons. So that that makes the chronology a bit muddled. For instance, three skeletons were found in a courtyard that had been filled in with rubble. And at first, archaeologists assumed that these were victims of a massacre, maybe murdered in the courtyard. However, modern scholarship suggests that the skeletons weren't from the time of the courtyard at all, that they were from much later and perhaps buried in the rubble after the courtyard had been filled in. Six skeletons were found in a narrow lane in one neighborhood, covered over with loose earth and rubble. Again, earlier archaeologists thought they were victims of a massacre. But today, it's believed that these skeletons came from a later time period than the buildings around them, and that they were buried here deliberately, long after the street they were found on had been built over. So somebody was digging down into older layers and putting those bodies in there, is the theory. You know who does that? Fucking murderers. (laughs) That's a thought. Like, honestly, right? Like, who does that? Who digs deep into the layers? Like, murderers hiding a body. Right. So maybe we've got some kind of a true crime scenario here. (laughs) Exactly. Says your true crime-loving tipsy war elephant. Well, we should get Debbie Felton back on. I'm sure she'd have things to say. Ancient serial killers of Mahanjo-Daro. I'm here for it. So, even the skeleton in Dead Man's Lane may not have originally been where it seems to have been. Studies suggest that the lane where the skeleton was found dates from the intermediate period of Mohenjo-Daro. The skeleton was found buried in rubble that accumulated there long after the lane became disused. Some modern theories suggest the skeleton was originally buried under the floor of a house that was built on top of this lane in the late period. See serial killers hiding their bodies when the city is abandoned and they're like, I'll go on to another city. And live a life as a normal person, but also I'm a murderer. The ancient world was a playground for serial killers. That's my theory. They could be in the cult of the severed head and they don't even have to hide it. See, everything comes back to the cult of the severed head. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. But that's what I'm saying, right? Like, so easy to do that and then just walk away. And to be fair, I don't think any of these skulls have actually, the skeletons have actually been decapitated. So I don't think they were part of the cult of the severed head. Probably not. Anyway. In fact, while earlier archaeologists thought all of these skeletons dated to the late period and were perhaps killed in one traumatic event, more recent carbon dating suggests otherwise. While some of the skeletons are indeed from the later period, others appear to be earlier by about a thousand years. Even those 14 bodies in room 74 of House 5 are hard to interpret. Photos of these skeletons are the most grisly and most often reproduced. If you Google the skeletons of Mahanjo-Daro, you'll probably see pics of them lying tangled and sprawled amidst rubble and ruined walls. In The Mythical Massacre at Mohanjo-Daro by George F. Dales, the author states, quote, The most celebrated group of skeletons, the photograph of which is usually published to provide visible proof of the quote-unquote massacre, was found in the area of Room 74, House 5, HR area. 
The interpretation of this grisly discovery was not even agreed upon by the excavators themselves. Mr. Hargreaves, who did the actual excavating, and I could be wrong, but I think this was all in the 1940s, maybe, thereabouts, states that because four of the 14 skeletons were found above the ruins of the southern wall of the room, the entire group belongs to a date subsequent to the decay of the building, and thus to a period posterior to the abandonment of the latest stage of the city. Marshall, the overall director of the excavations, says on the other hand, this does not seem to be proven. He points out that the building belongs to the intermediate period of the city, and that this entire area was covered over and rebuilt in the late period. The assumed late period remains were not preserved at this part of the city. It's probable that they had eroded away. Marshall suggests that the skeletons could belong to the interval between the intermediate and late periods. Furthermore, he observed that the twisted, intermingled positions of the bodies are those, quote-unquote, likely to be assumed in the agony of death than those of a number of corpses thrown into a room. There is no reason whatever for doubting that these burials date from the declining years of Mohanjo-Daro's prosperity, stated Marshall, but he didn't suggest that they represented any final massacre of the population. It's a little bit difficult for me to parse this all out because I don't think all of these skeletons have been carbon dated. I think a lot of the time they're trying to figure out how old they are based on their context in the archaeology. But anyway, so you have this one archaeologist, Marshall, saying, yeah, they probably weren't massacred, just tossed into a room. Okay, but that's also weird, right? Like, even if these bodies weren't violently killed, the way they're buried is weird. Like, we, we all agree on that, right? It's weird and, like, just all these bodies being tossed into a room to leave where they die. Like, were they bodies or were they maybe people with some kind of plague? The people of the Indus Valley had ritualized burial customs, pretty much like everybody else in the Bronze Age. Anyone else ever. I mean, we all have them. (laughs) Yeah. They tended to bury their dead in rectangular brick-lined pits, sometimes in coffins, their bodies aligned with their heads to the north and feet to the south. They were buried with grave goods, usually pots. Women were sometimes buried with copper mirrors. If these were just normal burials, where are the grave goods? Why are the skeletons so twisted and sprawling? Why were they buried in such a disorderly fashion? And you would think, in a society as obsessed with order and cleanliness as the people of the Indus Valley, they would be meticulous about how they buried their dead as well. Even if those 14 bodies weren't killed in a massacre, surely there was a societal breakdown of some kind to make the fastidious people of Mohenjo-Daro toss a bunch of bodies in a room. Disorderly burials do suggest some form of societal breakdown. It's possible this happened at multiple points in Mohenjo-Daro's history. Before we talk about the real societal conditions that could lead to these skeletons being tossed in rooms or buried in haphazard fashion in the ruins of an earlier city, Let's take a little side quest and talk about a popular pseudoscientific theory that has sprung up around Mahanjo-Daro and these bodies. Please, all of the sarcasmism, all of, I'm drunk, all of the sarcasmism that I'm imbuing here is called for. This one has to do with atomic bombs. Ancient atomic bombs. Ancient atomic bombs, okay? (laughs) I'm so here for this. Let's do it. (laughs) Because the ancients split the atom. I mean, look, they probably could have. We give the Indus Valley people a lot of credit here. So, the claim here is that the skeletons of Mahandradara were radioactive. They were tested and found to be 50 times more radioactive than normal. When was the testing done? I have so many theories about why that might be the case. This is going to shock you to hear. They were not tested for radioactivity at all. 
(laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) Okay. Bodies were found strewn across the streets, some of them holding hands, although we haven't seen any holding hands in the photos. There's nothing about them holding hands anywhere in the actual archaeology that I've seen. But this is this is what's in the lore. This is the lore. This is the urban legend. And what happened here wasn't a massacre, Jenny. It was a nuclear blast, an ancient nuclear apocalypse. These people were struck down in an atomic blast 4,500 years ago. You kind of trended into Kukulin a little bit. Uh, no, he wanted to come up for that last word. He did. He felt very strongly. He wanted that gravitas. Kukulin, do you wanna do you wanna help me with this? No, I like the way you read. Oh, that's that's really sweet. He likes to listen to you. I'm glad it's listen and not watch. He could watch if he wants, but I'm not doing anything particularly sexy Mm-mm, right now. <laughs> I'm gonna move on. This is usually backed up by descriptions of the powerful weapons in ancient Indian epics like the Mahabharata, which do sound kind of like atomic missiles and things and which pseudoscientists love to cite as examples of ancient world-ending technology, it's a whole thing. It is true that the skeletons at Mohanjo-daro are weird, even deviant, deviant burials. It's questionable that they were massacred. However, how true are these other claims about, you know, atomic bombs and shit? Okay, I did a bit of tracking down of some of these claims. The claim that the skeletons of Mohanjo-daro are radioactive appears to have appeared on the internet and gone viral sometime in the 2000s. No, something dodgy on the internet in the 2000s? Never. Shocker. It's, it's got this weird sort of twisting history. So the original claim is based on a passage in a book called Technology of the Gods, <laughs> The Incredible Secrets of the Ancients by David Hatcher Childress. I feel like that dude wants to make Atlantis and white supremacy fetch. Your instincts are right on. I always know if I hear something of the gods, I'm like, yup. <laughs> I know where this is going, kids. <laughs> he is a pseudo-historian and self-published author who refers to himself as a rogue archaeologist. The claim that he makes isn't original to him. He sources it from somewhere else, which gets it from somewhere else, which gets it from somewhere else. And I actually put together the entire chain. Well, other people did, and I put it together here. Exactly. And, you know, when you have a Russian nesting doll of claims, like... That's that's what this is. Literally Russian. So he gets the claim that he's making everything on to a different book called Riddles of Ancient History by a Russian pseudoscientist, A. Gorbovsky, that dates from 1966, originally in Russian. Gorbovsky was a science fiction aficionado, a fellow pseudo-historian enthusiast. Did he have any Hugos? We don't know. Was he a copywriter? I can't say. Was he a Manhattan copywriter? No, he was a Russian... Copywriter. Copywriter, pseudo-historian enthusiast. He wrote a number of things about how you can think yourself into winning the lottery, that poltergeist are real, and also divination. You get the idea of where this guy was coming from. So Gorbovsky also wasn't the original source for this claim about the radioactive skeletons. No. (laughs) Shocker. He's getting it from a different article. This one from two Russian academics in 1962 who are citing a different source from 1960. A report by a British academic describing radioactivity levels in a bone from ancient Egypt, currently in the British Museum. That article concludes that the radiation levels in the Egyptian bone were not out of the ordinary compared to modern humans, by the way. So, 
The claim about the skeletons from Mohenjo-Daro being radioactive was passed through, like, I don't know, four or five different sources in this weird game of telephone, and turns out not to be about skeletons from Mohenjo-Daro at all, and also not about radioactive skeletons, since the bone in question turned out not to be unusually radioactive. This is a claim based on nothing. Nothing! I've seen some people call it Soviet propaganda, which is probably not wrong. It's not wrong, considering, like... That is an area that the Soviets fought with for a while. So they would have reasons for making this a radioactive claim. I will say, like, (laughs) I totally agree with you. As soon as I saw that it's, like, in the British Museum and it's, like, radioactive levels up to today, it's, like, do you think you you dug it up and left it in, like, the modern world for a while and it's absorbed our radiation just like we did? Is that why the radioactive levels are the same as today? Another claim, which appears in the book Atomic Destruction in 2000 BC by David Davenport, states that some of the artifacts at Mohenjo-Daro had been glassified or fused by heat as high as 1,500 degrees Celsius. He also claims there's an epicenter in the city that's about 50 yards across where everything was fused or glassified. This is also held up as proof of an atomic blast that happened in the city. So this has been debunked. (laughs) I just need to feel like I read it really like properly, but this has been debunked. Archaeologists say that what Davenport takes as an atomic epicenter is actually an ancient trash yard where artisans dump broken pots made by vitrifying sand in kilns that could generate high temperatures. High enough temperatures to glassify things, I guess. Absolutely. They, they would have generated something that high to glassify something. And when you're looking at the type of jewelry they produced and other things from that area, of course you would have had kilns that could have gotten super hot. And then you're not even taking into account if any of these caught on fire or the outside conditions or like if some things were hot enough to glassify, would that maybe have had some effect in like the layers and sediment of things below it? Mm -hmm. So sure, the material in that area may have been subject to extreme heat just in a kiln like we get today. So it looks like the claim that an atomic bomb went off at Mohenjo-Daro is inaccurate. And it's stupid anyway, because... Mahanjadaro is made of brick. If an atomic bomb had gone off in Mahanjadaro, it would have vaporized the city or all of those bricks would have been irradiated. You would be able to find it in the bricks. This is a mud brick ancient city. Like if you set off an a atom bomb in Mahanjadaro, there would not be Mahanjadaro anymore. Like what are you talking about? But not even that you could fucking test, like just to say you wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt. You could test a brick. It would be in that brick. You could test the sediment between the bricks, like the glue keeping it together. I'm done. I'm I'm out. I'm out on this theory. I don't know if there was, in fact, mortar. That's actually a really good question. Anyway, um, so the city of Mohanjo-Daro was abandoned sometime around 1700 BC, although the dates on that are fuzzy. I've also seen dates of 1900 and 1300 BC, although I think 1300 is the date of the entire Indus Valley collapsing. It's a little bit hard to tell. Either way, it's clear that before the city died, there was a period of serious societal decline. The evidence is there in the latest layers of habitation in the city mound. An excavation of the later layers was done in 1965, so kind of a while ago, but it was described in Expedition Magazine, and I'm going to quote that here. So, quote, Immediately below the surface of the mound, we found a thin, poorly preserved level, which suggests a squatter-type occupation. The buildings were crudely constructed of second-hand, often broken bricks. The earlier excavators at Mohenjo-Daro have reported similar remains from other areas of the site. 
No traces of foreign objects which could indicate the arrival of invaders of non-Harappan peoples were found. The Indus Valley people are sometimes referred to as the Harappan people. It's kind of the same thing. So the squatter settlement, in quotation marks, seems to be a common way that archaeologists describe this last layer of habitation. And it does seem that the quality of life went down drastically in the last days of Mohenjo-Daro. Another thing that suffered was the crafts and artwork the people produced. Pottery, once elaborately painted, became plain and undecorated. People still made those stamp seal ID cards, but instead of carving them out of stone with beautiful and intricate designs, they were made of cheap paste or glass with only geometric designs. It does seem that a few of the original well-made seals from the earlier days of Mahanjo-Daro were kept by later families, perhaps as precious keepsakes. So clay animal figurines at Mohanjo-Daro were once highly artistic and detailed. Later figurines are much more crudely made. It would seem that while they were trying to hold on to the art and culture of times past, the people of later Mohanjo-Daro didn't have the time or resources or perhaps the skill to devote to their craft. One odd thing the archaeologists of 1965 noticed when they were excavating the later layers is that the people of that later time period seemed to have built a squatter settlement, quote-unquote, where they didn't have to. At the time these new people were building their settlement, the homes and buildings of the previous layer still existed and were in good repair. What seems to have happened is that the people filled in these houses, buried them completely with rubble and gray dirt, perhaps tossed some dead bodies in for good measure, who knows, it's a little questionable about those bodies, and then built a more rickety and tumble-down settlement on top. Why? There's a real simple reason. Floods. Some archaeologists believe that the people of Mohanjo-Daro were trying to raise the level of the city to protect it from rising floodwaters. Archaeologists have found flood deposits as high as 30 feet above the surrounding floodplain, and this may have contributed to the downfall of Mohanjo-Daro. It's this time period that many of the skeletons discovered at Mohanjo-Daro date from, although not all of those skeletons date from this time period. One theory is that they died not of a massacre, but of disease carried by waterborne illness brought in by repeated floods and standing stagnant water. It's possible that a plague swept this community, perhaps multiple times, which would explain why the dead were buried in such a haphazard fashion. When large numbers of a community die from plague, societal structures and customs often break down, including normal burial practices. Of course, you'd be right to ask, why was flooding such a problem now? The people of the Indus Valley were masters of the river. They lived side by side with the Indus for millennia. Why were they suddenly not able to control that river? One answer is that the river was changing. Nobody knows for sure, but one theory states that agriculture had been failing here for a while. According to this theory, the sea levels rose in the Arabian Sea around the middle of the 1000s BC. This made the soil in the Indus Valley more salinated and less fertile. It also contributed to more frequent and devastating floods. The Indus did change its course throughout its lifetime, and some evidence suggests it may have moved east at some point, moving closer to the city and putting it in more danger of floods. Another theory suggested a series of slow uplifts when tectonic plates move against each other and one edge is thrust upward while the other goes beneath, happened near the coast, and this created sort of an artificial dam 
causing the waters of the Indus to back up and slowly rise up the valley, encroaching on the land. Oh my god, ancient earthquakes. Sorry. I thought you'd like that. <laughs> I always love this. I love a good earthquake. Yeah, there may have been or may not have been like a large earthquake, but just like a slow uplift is kind of more of the story that I'm seeing. And it's, this is just one theory. So if this was the case, the people of Mahanjodaro would have seen the waters rising up the Indus Valley slowly, and they would have had some time to prepare. There are a series of high walls and bulwarks propping up the city mound, including one more than 25 feet tall. Archaeologists believe these were attempts to protect the city and raise it above the level of epic floods. To perhaps uncertain success, some evidence suggests the entire city could have been engulfed in water at one point, perhaps multiple times. Evidence in the ground for this isn't cut and dry. A lot of this is up for interpretation. But what's clear is that the city began to decline in its later years. Archaeologists found that the latest levels of habitation, the ones just below the surface of the mound, were haphazardly built with nothing near the comfort or engineering genius of earlier layers. Many of the bodies in the massacre are believed to date from this time, although some may have been earlier burials. Did the people of the last days of Mohanjo-Daro encounter a flood they couldn't outrun or escape or control? Or did they perhaps die of disease carried by waterborne illness? We'll never know. So, that's it for this week. Join us next week for whatever we're doing next. I'm sure it'll be light and fun. Come visit us on social media at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter. I don't know. Should we, like, be... What What social media are you guys all moving to from Twitter? Because, like, it's like the, you know, descending days of Mahanjadero over there. Like... <laughs> it's like the last days of Nero's reign. Should we still be there? Should we, we're kind of on Mastodon. We've got a TikTok. I might put us on Hive. Like, where are you all going to? Right, where are you all going? We don't know. We don't know what to do. We don't know where to go. Like, I guess we're just going to continue shoring up this city in the face of the flood. We're also on Instagram and Facebook, which both seem more stable at the moment. We quite like Instagram. We're at Ancient History Fangirl on those platforms. Yeah, and join our Patreon. The Patreon is literally how we keep the podcast alive and going. And you can help us do that by contributing to our Patreon. It's really fun. We do extra episodes on there. Sometimes we do video. We get into chats with our Patreon members. It's great. You can find it at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. And Jenny, we have some patrons to thank. Apologies to anyone whose name we mispronounce. I apologize in advance. So... Thank you very much to Jennifer Kimball, Rochelle Miller, Josh Woods, and Princess Cochlea. <laughs> Goddamn right. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>